sun Wondering what went wrong Falling down on your knees Asking for sympathy And being caught in between All you wish for and all you've seen Trying to find anything That you feel that you can believe in Well, good evening and welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine to all my friends, fans, and colleagues. I'm your hostess, Karen Tate, a longtime host here at the show. Uh, so glad to have you with us. Um, if uh, this is your if this is your first show, welcome. And if this is your uh, thousandth show, uh, thank you for your listener loyalty. Uh, just a quick shout out to Lori Kane. Uh, we got a little tease of uh, her single cut called "In the Sun." And uh, one of the reasons I thought about playing that tonight uh, was because of uh, our uh, our theme. We're going to be talking about modern Minoan paganism, uh, the divine feminine alive in today's world with Laura Perry, who is returning to the show. But we're going to be talking about the elusive Minoan sun goddess. Uh, yeah, that's going to be fun. Um, I know having gone to Crete myself, um, and I think having paid a lot of attention to uh, to Crete, uh, though not as much, uh, of course, as Laura has, uh, you know, we think of the snake goddess uh, as the goddess of Crete, but apparently uh, she was not the only one, and Laura is going to tell us uh, more about that tonight. Um, so let me introduce you to uh, Laura by way of her bio. Uh, Laura is a pagan author and artist with a special interest in the Minoans of ancient Crete. Uh, She's the primary force behind the growing tradition of modern Minoan paganism, a welcoming path that brings the goddesses and gods of ancient Crete alive for modern pagans. Laura has written two books about Minoan spirituality. In addition, she's created a Minoan tarot deck and a Minoan coloring book. She teaches online courses and modern Minoan paganism, and uh, her well. Her website is her name, lauraperryauthor.com, and it's L-A-U-R-A, perryauthor.com. So, Laura, welcome, welcome back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. I'm so glad to have you with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we always have fun, and, uh, you know, you intrigued me with this new information uh, about the Minoan sun goddess. So, um, you know, why don't uh, we start there? Who is she, and uh, does she have any relatives from the ancient Mediterranean? Okay, well, um, first let me explain how we discovered her, and, and then maybe I can sort of unveil her to the greater world. Uh, since most of uh, what has been going on with her so far has been in our online group and not um, not in a larger realm, I suppose. Um, this is one of those mystery bits where you have to piece together through comparative mythology and studying the symbols, you know, and figure out what used to be, because you know so much has been lost along the way, Um even though the Minoans were a literate society, we can't read their writing. Linear A, the script that they wrote in, has not been deciphered. Um, 
So uh, we knew there was a sun goddess. People have been talking about the Minoan sun goddess for years. Um, Nano Marinatos, who is a uh, an archaeologist, wrote a book about the Minoan sun goddess without even knowing who she really is, uh, which was an interesting feat. Um, but she collected up a bunch of uh, the art and the iconography and said, "Look, this has to this has to exist." Um, and so what we've been doing um, in my online group, which is Ariadne's Tribe on Facebook, um, is we take, we gather all of the bits and pieces that have come through to us, all of the beautiful art and the, the carvings on the seal stones, and we combine that with our personal spiritual practice to see if we can uh, reacquaint ourselves with the goddesses that we know are still there. And so we uh, we spent months chasing the sun goddess. Uh, at one point I had a dream, um, and I don't usually have sort of clear dreams where someone's trying to tell me something. Most of my dreams involve um, what sounds like, you know, a really bad trip. Um, but this was me standing on top of a ziggurat in next to the goddess Inanna of all beings and she was pointing to the west out over the Mediterranean she was pointing to Crete and she said the date palm that she said the date palm is the day sun and the pomegranate is the night sun and so we took that as our starting point um the date wow. palm is a ma- is a major symbol in Minoan iconography, and it turns out um, uh, there there are bits and pieces out there ca- that can be assembled um, to discover that there was a fairly widespread uh, sun goddess reverence in the Eastern Mediterranean in the Bronze Age, and the goddesses probably had different names in different places, but they all have the same iconography. <clears throat> So the date palm is is the sun goddess's sacred plant. The griffin, um, that combination of lion and eagle, is her sacred animal, a mythical creature, and her sacred color is red, like um, the Tyrian purple phoenix dye that's made from mm-hmm. the um, from the murex shells. And and we yeah. put all this together, yeah. And so, and we think that the purple dye may actually have been sacred to her because it's that color. Okay, um, um, this is I'm I'm fascinated with this, but let let's just go back. So you talked about the date palm, and mm-hmm. and one more time, uh, one more time, I want to let this sink in. So the date okay. palm was what, and the and the pomegranate was what? Oh, what what the dream said was the date palm is the day sun, the daytime sun. And the pomegranate is the nighttime sun. So what is so the nighttime to, sun? Okay, so um, are you familiar with Egyptian mythology, with how the sun god a, a, a Ra bit. rides? Okay, so he rides through the sky during the day in his solar bark, right, his boat. And then at night he rides in that same boat through the underworld. Okay, right. so... Um, so in in the ancient world, many cultures visualized the sun as going around the earth and literally riding through the underworld at night and then okay. coming back okay. up. Okay. 
So there's a circular path, and it's not just up in the sky. It's also through the underworld. And Well, and that and, also and, ties into Persephone, too, wouldn't it? Yes, um, possibly. Um, the interesting thing is that in the Mediterranean and a number of other places, the sun goddess is associated with thermal springs because it's thought that when she rides through the underworld, she heats the water that then bubbles up through the rocks. Oh, how cool so is hot, that? That makes such sense. So, <laughs> so hot springs are sacred to, of all beings, the sun goddess. Um, there's, there's an amazing book. It is unfortunately out of print. I do wish someone would reprint it. It's by Patricia Monahan, and it's called Oh, Mother Sun. And it is an incredible journey through the sun goddesses of essentially the entire world, all, all the continents that she was uh, familiar with in her research. Um, and it talks about the hot springs in so many different cultures. The, at Bath uh, in England, Sulis, Sul was a sun mm-hmm. goddess. And that hot right. spring is sacred to her. So yeah, so there were there were hot springs um, on Thera in Akrotiri. That's a, a, a volcanic island. Um, right. Well, and I was just actually I was thinking about that because there was this uh, documentary on television that they were they were there at Thera, and one of the reasons they thought it might have been Atlantis was because of the hot springs. Um, but you know that that's a digression. But anyway, uh, you know it, it it just you know called that to mind. But I hadn't ever connected hot springs to a sun goddess before. That's a new concept for me. But it makes perfect sense. And apparently volcanoes as well, because she heats the earth itself until it melts and boils up. Interesting, uh, almost Pele-like in a sense. Yes. And so um, we were talking about how, and bear in mind, this is not just me. This is a group effort. We've got over a 1,000 people in Ariadne's tribe. And, you know, there are always the lurkers, but there are a lot of people who, who participated in this process. So this is not just me. Um, right. So um, we were talking about the island of Farah, which is called Santorini now, what remains of it after it blew itself to smithereens. Um and uh, I was, we, and we knew that the uh, the sun goddess had something to do with that island. And I was in meditation one day, and a name came to me, and I put it out to the group and said, "What do you think? Do you think this might be her name?" And everyone said, "Yeah, I think that's her name." Um, okay, you got to tell so, us. You're teasing <laughs> us. <laughs> and so what 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 we we do we can't say for certain that this is what the Minoans called her, but this is how we know her. And we call her Tirasia. And say it again. The way Tirasia. And the way that So it's like T I R A S I A. Well, the way we've decided to spell it, um acknowledges the island of Farah. We've decided to spell it T-H-E-R-A-S-I-A. Cool. Because we think, we think the whole island of Farah was actually dedicated to her because it had that incredible volcano. Right. And those hot springs. Right. Um, okay. And, and, and so um, we think her 
one of her epithets was Caliste, which means most beautiful. Um, and and that is that is the kind of name that you give to a beloved goddess, but also to one who's incredibly powerful that you want to be really nice to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, <laughs> uh, she did blow up an entire island. So um, right. And, well, and that all was, right. So yeah. so let's 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 unpack that just a little bit. So, um, I mean, because this is all, you know, this is all very intriguing and I understand that, you know, this is kind of a reconstruction. Um, yes. first of yeah, all, is, is, is yeah. it, and, you know, and that's perfectly fine. You know, I mean, I, I mean, we used to do that with ISIS, quite frankly, you know, we sort of right. reconstructed her worship in a, a modern context to make it relevant. And, um, right. and, and I get that. I, I, I think we have to do that. You know, religion has to evolve. It's, these are living traditions. Um, but, but so let me ask you a couple questions. Uh, the first mm-hmm. being, um, going back to that incredible dream you had, um, why do you think Anana on the ziggurat? I mean, do you already have a connection with Anana? Uh, I do. Um, I do. That goes back to uh, the very early days of, of my spiritual practice. But I also think that the sun goddess, uh, one, or, one or another face of her, was present in Mesopotamia. We know about, um, and I'm probably going to mispronounce her name, Wurun Shamun, the sun goddess of Arena. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we know that, that those goddesses were present in Mesopotamia with similar symbology, similar iconography. So this okay. is not just this is not just Crete, it's not just the eastern Mediterranean, it's that whole broad region in the Bronze Age. So Right. Interesting. You know, we know we know they were there. Uh, we just don't know many of their names. So do uh, or are there other goddesses that you think um would be well will you call it related to her uh but but maybe they're just her with a different name? Um that one's really difficult um and this this goes toward um the concept of uh, deities being demoted when cultures change. Mm-hmm. Um the the um Obviously, the the goddesses like uh, Rhea, the Earth Mother goddess of Crete, and and Chirassia, or whatever her name was back then, um, and and the sea goddess, these were primal and primary uh, deities to the Minoans. But then, uh, the the Minoans were a part of old Europe. Um, in Maria Gambutas's term, they were um, pre-Indo-European. And when the Indo-Europeans came in, they had their sky god, who was the primary deity of their pantheon. And that's not the sun, that's the sky. And obviously a sun goddess is going to compete with that, right? Especially one mm-hmm. that's already right. at the top of the pantheon. So these goddesses um, and any any other competing deities had to be demoted in one way or another when the new culture came in. And so, yeah, as the, as, yeah, I mean, it's it's a common process that happens around the world as cultures collide or or blend together in some fashion, and the the right. culture that win the culture that wins out, um, their their pantheon wins out, and you see that in the mythos. Yeah. And so, um, 
And so we get like goddesses like Ariadne getting demoted to being a mortal woman. Well, and you get sun goddesses being demoted to moon goddesses sometimes, which is very interesting. Um, it well, looks like. Well, and let me ask mm-hmm. you. Let me ask you about about this. You know, because we talked mm-hmm. about you know Sarah the volcano and uh, you know the right. heat from the you know as the sun goes you know underground. Um, do you? And, and I hadn't really thought about this much before till you and I are, are talking tonight. But do you think there is a correlation between a sun goddess and a fire goddess? Um, because, you know, you said something about, well, the Egyptian pantheon, and I was thinking to myself, I don't know of, uh, you know, I'm thinking, you know, like maybe Sekhmet or, um, but but, yeah. do you, it, it, but Sekhmet's also a fire goddess. Do you think a fire goddess is a sun goddess? Um, I think sometimes, yes. I um, One of the... Uh, phrases that we see repeated, um, and again, I'm drawing on the information from Patricia, Patricia Monahan's book, um, which uh, is is well worth your time to go uh, search it out at a used bookstore. Um, one of the common uh, epithets for sun goddesses is fire of heaven. Mm. So yeah. Um, and so the idea that the sun is the source of all fire, mm-hmm. right? And so and so when yeah. there's fire on Earth, like the volcanoes or like the fire that apparently heats the thermal springs, um, they would think of that as as also coming from the sun goddess. Okay. So where did, um, is there a Minoan pantheon, and where does she fit? Is she like, you know, at the at the top of the heap, so to speak? You know, at the, at the top of the hierarchy, um, you know, or is there some sort of, uh, you know, three faced goddess? You know, land, sea, sky, or, you know, how how are, how are you imagining it, or how are you? How is it coming to you in your group? Because, you know, you could be channeling this divine information, you know? Well, I, I like to think that um, the the gods and the goddesses are talking to us and we're listening to the best of our ability. Um, and, and how that comes out, I guess, is on us. Um, I do have to um, give you sort of a disclaimer or maybe a little piece of background information Minoan society lasted, you know, at its high point for a good two millennia. And so its religion changed over that time. And then at the end when the Mycenaeans came in, it changed significantly so that, you know, the the goddesses who had once been supreme were probably not so supreme anymore. So mm-hmm. what we're what we're putting together as the Minoan pantheon is something that works for us as modern pagans, as modern devotees of of uh, that kind of spiritual practice and the divine feminine, but we would like to think that it is at least partially representative of the way the Minoans saw the world, um, especially before there were a lot of outside influences that changed uh, the way their religion worked. So that's my disclaimer. <laughs> okay. And so yeah. Fair enough. So yeah. 
you um you talked about land, sea, and sky. That is a uh, a triplicity that is common in druidry, for instance, and in and a lot of other paths. And we have stumbled upon it um, for the Minoans as well. Um, what we have uh, come to see as the three mothers. This is not a triple goddess, but a triplicity of goddesses. Three goddesses who represent the three realms of creation, land, sea, and sky. And so there's Rhea, who is um, the earth mother goddess. She is Her body is the island of Crete itself. Um, and then there's the, the sea goddess. Um, her name shows up in the Linear B tablets written by the Mycenaeans. Her name is Posidaia, which is the feminine <clears throat> form that gets changed into Poseidon. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Um, and then there's Serasia, who is the, the sun. She is the sky. She is the, the fire of heaven, the light of the sky. So we have that land, sea, and sky triplicity. And... Um, you get a very special uh, liminal spot all around the coast of Crete if you're standing on the beach, right, with the water just touching your toes and looking up at the open sky, you are standing at the intersection of those three sacred realms. And that is the mm. spot where the three and that is the spot where the three goddesses come together. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, you know, what an incredible uh, sacred space that would be, sacred place. Now, I have to wonder how much um, archaeology we're missing because in Minoan times, the sea level was just a little bit lower than it is now. And so mm-hmm. there was another there was another uh, 50 to 100 meters of coast around the edge of the island and and I would like to think that the the Minoans had um temples right small outdoor temples you know for for rituals right in that liminal space um, right right we we have they ha- they have turned up Minoan era cemeteries that are right on the beach right at the tideline so we know they uh they worked their way out right to the coast so I have to wonder what's just under the water was still waiting to be discovered. Mm, it's exciting, isn't it? Um, so, so let's a uh, uh, question about the um, you know their undeciphered writing. Um, mm-hmm. It's is it linear? Is it linear A? Is that the one that's not deciphered? It is. It is. Um, I know there are it horribly is, uh, unimaginative names. <laughs> Um, it's called. They're called linear A and linear B because linear A came first. First, right. So, um, okay. are they close? I mean, or is anyone working on deciphering it? Oh, people have tried for years and years. The problem is we don't have enough text. Okay. Um, it's it's not a matter of of anyone not being clever enough. It's a decipherment, which is actually a mathematical process to a certain extent. And we were able to decipher Linear B because we have a lot more of those tablets. And so hmm. it's possible to just run it through the statistical process that is used to decipher a script. Um, right. But uh, Linear well, A, Linear B uh, is Mycenaean Greek, but Linear A is whatever language the Minoans themselves spoke. 
Well, and, you know, I, it, I couldn't help, but my brain went right to the Vatican libraries. <laughs> you know, what do they have hidden there? Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, I, I can't help but wonder that, uh, you know, wouldn't it be incredible if in our lifetime something, um, you know, something revealed itself? Uh, I mean, it could rewrite everything. Well, you know, they are still finding more Minoan sites. Um, I know a lot of people think that, you know, Sir Arthur Evans discovered Knossos and then there were, you know, a dozen others in the early 20th century and that was it. But um, there was a new uh, Minoan temple site, temple and town site um, just east of Malia on the north coast of Crete that was discovered in the 1990s. And another mm-hmm. one up on the Lasifi, another one on the Lasifi Plateau. More recently than that, so we're still finding these places. Um, it's possible that that uh, I've heard uh, several people say that Crete might have been even more heavily populated in Minoan times than it is now. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, I, yeah, I have I have my fantasies too about someone um, digging up another cache of these tablets or. Um, it's it's likely that the Minoans used perishable materials like they probably imported papyrus from Egypt. Mm-hmm. So maybe some, yeah. and some lucky archaeologist will open a, a giant clay jar and discover, you know, all these papyruses with linear A written all over them. Right, right, like they did with um, the Dead Sea Scrolls or something. Yeah. Um, So now, you know, you've alluded to, um, you know, the goddesses being demoted, so to speak, um, you know, with the clash of cultures and the, you know, the people with the sky gods. Um, You know, was there more to the story about why they were demoted to nymphs and muses or, you know, mere mortals or demonized like the Minotaur? I mean, do you think the Minotaur was one of their uh, gods or goddesses? Uh, Yeah, we we do actually experience the Minotaur as a god, um, as as one of the horned ones in... um, for, for us, at least, in the practice of modern Minoan paganism, the horned ones come in male-female pairs. So oh. the Minotaur, the Minotaur, so so there's gender balance, right? So the Minotaur mm-hmm. pairs with Europa, the, the Minotaur pairs with Europa, right? Who is the great cow goddess whose milk spurted to create the Milky Way? Um, Interesting. Yeah. And, Again, and makes so, perfect sense. Yeah. <clears throat> But yeah, um, it's it is a clash of cultures kind of thing, and mythology tends to reflect the culture, right? I mean, everybody by now has probably read Merlin Stone's great book, When God Was a Woman, and mm-hmm. yeah, and so yeah, and so it's it's that sort of thing when um, when a new culture meshes with an old one, and the cultural values change and cultural roles change then the roles of the gods have to change, too, to reflect whoever's in charge. You know, history is written by the victors. Um, yeah. Only back, then it was, only back then it was mythology and not history, because those right. were the stories right. that people told. So, yeah, you end up with, um, with Ariadne and her labyrinth and the Minotaur, who are incredibly powerful deities with... Um, with symbolism that that goes straight to the heart and straight to you know the depths of our own souls and you get them um, repainted as 
a monster in a maze trap and a girl with a ball of string. Right? Yeah. So it's it's not just it's not that the Mycenaeans were some sort of horrible people. This is the kind of thing that happens around the world and across time as um as cultures combine with each other and one comes to dominate. Um and yeah. so the, yeah, the yeah. The the culture that wins well, out wants to paint itself in the most positive light and the easiest way to do that is to demote and demonize the other guy. Yeah, and well that old history's written by the conquerors, you know, or yeah, religion, yeah. you know, in in this case. Um let's let's take a little break, Laura. Um I okay. owe a commercial to Joe Carson. When we come All back right. though, um we've been spending most of our time talking about the Minoan um uh mother goddesses, you know, the earth goddess, mm-hmm. the a little bit about the water goddess and the and the sun goddess. Um I wanna know um if if you've gleaned anything about the gods uh, okay. And then, you know, maybe we'll talk about the uh, Eleusinian mysteries and their calendar and that, that sort of thing. So um, hang on for a minute uh, while we all hear a word from Joe Carson. All right. Thanks. Let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is what Drusilla Pettibone said on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I don't think I can comment on it adequately until I've had a chance to watch it a couple more times. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was obviously very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also so pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. about Joe Carson's um, uh, film, Dancing with Gaia. Uh, It's a feature-length documentary film. Uh, In it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of the goddesses Gaia. 
Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot this film. Uh, These spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. If you've always wanted to see them yourself but haven't or think you might never, this is an opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. And it's a real bargain. You can buy the DVD and the booklet for only $20 at the website, dancingwithgaia.com. So, Laura, um, mm-hmm. turning our attention yeah. back to uh, Minoan Crete, um, you know, I, and you know, and I'm thinking again back to you know the little bit of time I was lucky enough to, you know, spend in the Anatolian Museum and on Crete. Um, I don't, you know, and I could just be having a um, senior moment here or something. But to be honest, I don't remember any Minoan gods. Um, am I, you know, or maybe I was just too focused on the goddess. Um, what can you tell us about the Minoan gods? Um, well, the first and most obvious one is Dionysus. Uh, he is, uh, he, he was essentially the uh, preliminary god in the pantheon. Uh, he is Rhea's son, Rhea, if you want to pronounce her name correctly. Um, she gives birth to him every winter solstice in her sacred cave on Crete in the mountains there. Um, so, gee, I don't, I don't think that sounds at all familiar, a divine child um, born to a mother <laughs> with no father at winter solstice um, gee, in a, in a cave surrounded by is- animals. What did that sound um, like? Um, however, I do familiar. have to tell. <laughs> I do have to tell you though, when you said Dionysus, I kind of had this weird feeling in my stomach because you know what I, you know, and this is just my own fault, uh, my own thing here. I guess because to me, in a way, Crete is separate from Greece, but I didn't think about Dionysus as being associated with Crete. You know, um, I, I, he, I, I, he I, appears to actually have begun there. Um, huh. When the he was already there when the early Greeks, the Mycenaeans, came and and were trading with the Minoans. He was already there um, uh, as the ecstatic vine god who dies with the grape harvest every year. Um, he was he's also a psychopomp. Um, there are stories about him as, as specifically having a dolphin form and being a psychopomp for sailors who die at sea which is very appropriate for the Minoans with their enormous fleet trading all over. And so he right. was already there when the Greeks met the Minoans, the, the Mycenaeans met them. And so they um, they had a different culture and a different pantheon, right? Their pantheon had a god at the top of it. So they looked at the Minoan pantheon and said, who's the top dude? And mm-hmm. they saw Dionysus there because that's what they were looking for. And they referred to him as Cretan Zeus. Hmm. And so when you see okay. when you see Cretan Zeus in any of the myths, that's Dionysus. Because like, like the later Romans, the Greeks um, looked at other people's pantheons, at foreign pantheons, and tried to equate them with their own deities so they could understand them. 
Right. And so they right. Call, they called him Cretan Zeus. And so that's how you end up with stories of Zeus being born in a cave on Crete. It's not the Zeus from Mount Olympus. It's Dionysus. Oh. Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. Well, and also you said he was referred to as the vine, and my mind went back again to Jesus. You know, um, a Jesus lot, being the vine. The, uh, yeah, a lot of the um, the sayings, the, the epithets, and the... Um, a lot of the the imagery and symbolism in the in the in heaven <laughs> in the Jesus story is um, is sort of gathered bits and pieces from other deities. So yeah, you get a lot of I mean, who turns water into wine? That's Dionysus's trick, right? Well, and, and we were talking about Inanna. Um, I remember uh, reading about the part of her imagery was the fish and the net. And, yeah. you know, and and there you go with Jesus again, you know, the net and the fishes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that this is so incredible when you think about it. And, um you know, not to you know, not not to be mean here, but uh, you know, this is why I get so annoyed when Christians won't have an open mind about uh, you know their religion and uh, it, and you know just do a little bit of homework. <laughs> well, um, obviously, but the anyway. symbolism still resonates, right? Or else people yeah. wouldn't it wouldn't interest people. But yeah, so so Dionysus is uh, is a major. Um, major player there. The Dionysus that most of us are familiar with from classical myth, which is like a thousand years after the Minoans are gone, um, is actually a combination of the Minoan god with a similar ecstatic god from Thrace. And so they like hmm. put those two gods that sort of put those two gods together and, and generated a new cult from that. But yeah, he starts out in Crete. That's uh that's his official birthplace. So you can still go to the cave. <laughs> so he, um, do we know the name of the cave by chance? Yeah. Well, there are there are several that vie for um, for uh, primacy. Um, so there's okay. the um, so there's the cave on um, on Mount Dicte, which is the or Dicte. I think it's it's I'm. I I know ancient Greek, and that's a completely different pronunciation system than modern Greek. And so anyone who knows modern Greek is probably going to cringe at all of my pronunciation because there's about (laughs) as much difference between ancient Greek and modern Greek as there is between Anglo-Saxon and modern English. Um, So all of of my pronunciations are ancient Greek. So if you speak modern Greek, I apologize. Um, So anyway, um, so... um, there's um, the the Idaean cave on Mount Mount Ida, Mount Ida, um, and there's the the Sikro cave on um, Mount Dicte, and there are a couple others as well. Um, we think they were okay. probably they were probably shrines to uh, to Rhea and Dionysus in Minoan times. Um, maybe each region had their own. So you didn't have to go all the way to the other end of the island, you know, right. to to make a pilgrimage. Um, and 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 you're so, also, yeah. you know, and if it's a, and here you have a mother and a son again, right. um, sharing <clears throat> a temple space. 
you know, that, that kind of um, makes me think of some things, too. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, the mother, the mother and the son. Um, so, so, so are we thinking that Dionysus was the primary god then? Um, that is our experience so far. Um, here's the thing. Maybe this is just because we don't have written records, but it's awfully hard to slot the Minoan deities into anything that looks like a human family tree. So we're used to, like, the Greek and Roman gods. You can actually draw family trees for them, and the Norse gods, mm-hmm. too, and the Celtic ones. We're used to being able to, to just draw the lines, you know, just like on a mm-hmm. human family tree. That's awfully hard to do with the Minoan deities, um, partially because we're reconstructing this out of fragments. It's like putting a, a jigsaw puzzle together when a lot of the pieces are missing, and we don't have the box, so we don't know what the picture's supposed to look like. Right. So, um, well, so it's it's a challenge. Well, let me ask but you, yeah. Well, well, let me ask you about kenosis. Um, I mean, I know um, that kenosis is a controversial place. Uh, I forget the name of the archaeologist that you know reconstructed it. Um, but ha- is that something that you've studied much about, um, you know, or, or has come to you? Uh, you know, do, do we have that all wrong, or do you think we're close? Uh, I mean, you know, there's the throne room there, and, uh, I mean, it, it's such a beautiful place. But is it, you know, do you think we have much of it right um, I think we do now. Um, when Sir Arthur Evans started excavating, you know, 100-plus years ago, um, he he did the same thing that Schliemann did in Troy. He was trying to prove his version of a myth as history. Okay, so he wasn't an archaeologist in the modern sense of wanting to dig carefully and see what's there and then come to a conclusion. He had his conclusion when he started. Um, And that's just the way archaeology was at that time. Um, It was the province of rich white men who could afford to go do this sort of thing. Um, So a lot of his, there is a lot of contention about his reconstruction. But I think the main thing to bear in mind is that the site of Knossos is a snapshot in time. And what you see today um, as the temple complex there is from the very late period um, when the Mycenaeans were already there, when the culture had already changed. Um, and so it's, it's like a blended culture at that point. So it's right, not, right. I guess it's not what you might call pure Minoan. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I think a lot of what Evans said about it has been set aside. It's not a palace. Everybody pretty much agrees these days there was no monarchy. Um, Crete appears to have been ruled um, or governed, I suppose you should say, um, at the level of the individual cities kind of like the city-states in Mesopotamia. The the cities were all independent, and each one Mm -hmm. seems to have been ruled, have been run from the temples. So it was probably a small cohort of people. uh, And the the temples were administrative centers. 
Um, they were a focus of the community. They were ritual centers. They, they were very similar to the function, although not the architecture, of the, the temple complexes in Mesopotamia at the same time. So it was yeah. like your church and your government offices all rolled into one. Right, right. And and so the feather prints and the bull jumping and, uh, you know, the women with the bare breasts and uh, the the goddess with the cat on her head, um, what do we know about all of that? Okay. Um, the main thing to remember about the frescoes, which are admittedly stunningly beautiful, especially for you know, how long ago they were created. The main thing to remember is that they're all extremely fragmentary. They were literally found in tiny pieces in piles on the floor. Okay, they were not on the walls when the place was excavated. They were on the floor in little crumbled heaps. So they had to be carefully separated and then put back together. And most of the um, frescoes from Crete are mostly reconstruction. We have maybe 30%, maybe 40% of, we're, if we're lucky, of the surface area of any given fresco. And the rest of it is just stuff that modern artists have filled in to finish the picture. Wow. Um, so, so that's the thing to remember. Um, mm-hmm. there, will, there will probably always be argument about whether they've been reconstructed correctly. And if we're really honest, we can't ever know for sure. Yeah. Um my my main uh my main point about them is don't go basing, you know, don't go basing your whole major theory, whatever it might be, on any of the frescoes because they're only very fragmentary. Um, right. The, now the frescoes from Akrotiri, we have almost complete, the ones like the the girls with the rite of passage with the saffron uh picking the saffron crocus flowers. Um, the the volcano destroyed the island, but the ash that fell on it um, preserved it just like Pompeii. Okay. So we have so we have those frescoes. There, most of them are almost entirely complete. Okay. Um, but the ones from Crete, from from Knossos, from Malia, from Phaistos, Hagia, Triada, wherever we have the the frescoes from. They are very fragmentary. Um, so, what, so what is, uh, you know, I, I hope this isn't jumping around too much, but what are your thoughts about the people who either say that Thera was Atlantis or um, ancient Minoan Crete was Atlantis? Do you have uh, strong feelings either way? Um, I do. Um, I think... I think the major the major reason that for a very long time people thought Thera was Atlantis was that they thought its eruption was what destroyed Minoan civilization. Okay, so and that would have made perfect sense, right? This island blows up, the remains of it are in rings, just like uh, Plato describes as Atlantis being, and it destroys what might have been the most advanced civilization of the time. Uh, the thing is, that's not how it happened. Um, it took a lot of years of a lot of different archaeologists piecing the layers together or digging them apart, I guess you could say, um, to realize that 
um, Sira's eruption did not destroy Manoan civilization. It did do a lot of damage all around the Mediterranean, not just to Crete and the Aegean Islands, but uh, up the coast of Greece and Anatolia and, you know, the ash cloud uh, really covered a large portion of the eastern Mediterranean. But the Minoans recovered. They rebuilt uh, most of their cities, and they went on for another 200-plus years after that. So um, Thera did not destroy the Minoans. And so it, it kind of doesn't make sense as Atlantis now that we know that. Right, um, right. So it no longer and, fits and, the story. And you don't buy the theory that Minoan Crete inspired the legend of Atlantis. I think Plato was trying to tell an allegory. Um he he was more of a mystic than a lot of people uh, give him credit for, and mm-hmm. I think he was trying he was trying to point out um, some of the negatives of his own time by taking pieces of various stories that he had heard over the course of his life and putting them together into a hypothetical. Right. And saying look and saying look imagine if we had a society like this. Um. You know what? What could possibly bring an amazing society like that to its downfall? Yeah, and and then pointing out, you know, the things that could, which of course were issues in his own time, in his own region. Yeah, um, yeah. And and I think it's possible okay. that it was actually based on a story of a much much older civilization. I think he may have pulled that up. You know, as as part of the myth, I think there may have been a myth of a much much older uh, civilization. Um, okay, fair not enough. Necess- fair not, enough. Yeah, not not necessarily in the Mediterranean. But. All right. Well, let's let's shift gears a little bit and talk uh, talk more about the Minoan uh, calendar and their religion. Um, would we recognize their wheel of the year? I mean, would it be? I mean, I don't even know that we don't even know if they would call it that. But um, do you think it would be similar to what most pagans do today? Um, I think they probably had uh, a pretty full festival calendar. I'm sure there are tons of uh, dozens and dozens of festivals that we haven't even figured out yet um, because we know that sort of thing was a constant in the ancient world. What we have figured out is based largely on the architectural alignments of the temples and the peak sanctuaries and places like that. So we know they held the solstices and the equinoxes as sacred. Um, we know they uh, had celebrations at the grape harvest um, that was uh, they, those still go on. We know they had uh, harvest celebrations in the springtime around the equinox. And no, I didn't say that wrong. Because in the Mediterranean, the growing season actually starts by planting in the fall, and then the stuff grows over the mild winter, and then is harvested in the spring. So it's backwards from what a lot of us are used to. Okay, um, thank you for punctuating that. So. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I think I think it would I think we would feel uh, comfortable with their wheel of the year because 
it's based on the cycles of the seasons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's all it's based on um, when things when things grow and when they're harvested and when they die. Um, so we have, um, and we think they may have had actually a multi-season, uh, a multi-week holiday season, although we don't know that they had actual weeks in their calendar. But you know. We think they may have had a, a sort of a holiday season, kind of like our winter holiday season, but theirs would have mm-hmm. been in the late fall. So they okay. had the grape harvest. They had the grape harvest in probably late August to early September, whenever the grapes um, were ready. And then the um, the Eleusinian mysteries probably began on Minoan Crete, or some some version of them. They they may have actually been held in multiple places. But that was timed to the um, heliacal rising of the stars Arcturus and Spica. So that's a 10-day-long series of rituals in early September. It would have been early September in the Minoan times. And then when that's over, uh, you're up to uh, autumn equinox when the rains start and it's time to bless the fields and start planting. And um, the tomb alignments, and, and other places suggest that the earliest um, New Year, the earliest uh, New Year date or time in uh, in ancient Crete was probably the autumn equinox, the beginning of their agricultural cycle. Um, mm. Just like how until until well into the Middle Ages, um, the New Year in Europe was celebrated in the spring when people planted their crops. Rather than January first, so, uh, you mean? Right, right. So it, it, yeah, it was not, uh, it was not celebrated by the calendar, but by the season. Right. You know, by okay. what was what was actually going on in nature. So right. yeah, it's, uh, and I'm sure you know that there are many, many that that we haven't discovered and that we may never know. So, um, as, as far as the practice. Though well, I mean, not that that's not practice, but uh, speaking more, um, uh, you know, shamanically or ecstatically, mm-hmm. um, what is there anything we can glean, and how do we glean maybe what they did? You know, again, is it from what imagery, uh, artifacts we have left, or a combination? Um, we have images of what are very obviously ritual scenes. Um, including what looks like ecstatic dancing. Um, there's the tree-shaking ritual, which we still haven't quite figured out what that is, but hopefully one day we will. Um, and we also have the uh, the interesting um, archaeology of what's called residue analysis. Um, when you have a terracotta pot, um, the Minoans didn't have glazes. The glazes weren't invented until much later, so none of their pots were glazed. And so anything that was kept in any kind of vessel, a cup, a jar, anything, would uh, soak into the terracotta just a little bit. So it's still there 4,000 years later mm-hmm. and, and wow. can be analyzed. So, so we know, for instance, that um, for some occasions at least they spiked wine with opium. You know, they mm. grew opium pop. They grew opium poppies. We see them on the headdress of one of the bell jar goddesses. Already, okay. You know, to the the she's called the poppy goddess, and she has poppy pods that are actually um, sliced down the sides with the latex oozing out, the way you do to prepare opium. 
So we know they did that. Um, hmm. And it and it would have been done not in a partying kind of sense, but in a very sacred kind of way and controlled by people who knew how to run the ritual and make sure that people had the right kind of experience. This would not have been done lightly at all. Like we think they probably did the Eleusinian Mysteries. Right, right. Interesting. So, yeah, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a different worldview, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, and and so the goddess with the cat on her head, um, have we figured anything out about that? Uh, unless it's um, uh, animal husbandry or... Well, the thing is, we're not entirely certain that the cat and the hat, apologies to Dr. Seuss, actually belong to that figurine. Um, the oh. figurine was found. The figurine was found without a head and without a left arm. And according to, and in what's called the temple repositories, which were essentially pits um, in under the floor in one section of the temple <clears throat> at Knossos, and um, we don't know if they were thrown there as trash or stored there or put there as people ran out as the temple was burning down. But according to Sir Arthur Evans' notes, the the cat and the hat, which obviously fit together as a single unit, were found nearby, quote unquote, to the um, body of the figurine. So we don't know honest, honestly whether they belong together or not. He thought <laughs> they did, and so when his art team reconstructed the figurine's head, they put the hat with the cat on it. So we don't know what <laughs> and we it, don't know what the cat and the hat originally went to, but they well, obviously we are, had some well, kind of significance. Well, goddess, whoever you are, we are mm. well intentioned. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I I picked up those uh, statues when you know when I was there in Crete, and you know they they sit in a uh, in a very special place, uh, you know, on a in a on a pedestal in my house, and it's funny to think that uh, someone you know that might not even be the right head on the body now. Um, but I love her anyway. What can I say? <laughs> well, she has um, you were her own living icon, so I, I think yes. we're I think we're okay. I think we're okay. Yes. Yes. Well, <clears throat> you know, and it kind of goes to that idea. Um, you know, the the age old question: Does man create God, or does God create man? You know, I mean, because look at the deities in a sense that that have been that that we create ourselves. You know, right, I and right. I you know I lay out, you know kind kind of you know tongue in cheek, but I think about uh, the goddess Asphalta. Uh, that we call to when we need a park-in space, you know, or yes, we need yes. the traffic to clear. And she always seems to listen. <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean. Um, you know, uh, there's uh, so many of, you know, this is this is a common theme. But, uh, well, you know, Laura, you are just an incredible fount of information uh, about this subject. I, I have a feeling that you could just, um, you could go on and on. I mean, you, you, you should be a, a, a scholar at the front of the room, uh, you know, teaching, uh, you know, the, this this whole history. I, I mean, I feel like we're just barely uh, scratching the surface, and there's uh, there's so much there. I, I'm, I'm so impressed. 
Well, thank you. It's a bit of an obsession, and I try not to talk people's ear off about it, but uh, it's important. <laughs> well, you, you know, will, I think it's important well, that we can make these connections. So, yeah, I do too. I do too. And you would never, you would never talk my ear off. I do not get tired of hearing you. Um, so, uh, so please let me let me say the you know you there, it, there's always an open door for you here, uh, you know to come back and talk about uh, some other aspect of all of this. And and before I let you go tonight, was there anything you wanted to share about the subject that maybe I forgot to ask you? Oh heavens. Um... I, I think the main thing I wanted to do was was to to put Tarasia out there and the the three mothers as a um, sort of a way to introduce them to the modern world. I think um, they have a great deal of meaning for a lot of us, and I hope they have meaning for others as well. And and do you want to say anything about your Facebook page or your group that that meets to? Um, I mean, do you act as a coven, or uh, I mean, how, how is it you you practice this? Because I, I've I've gathered that a lot of this information you've gleaned has come through, um, you know, in that you've reconstructed has come through the practice of trying to uh, bring this back alive. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, the we have a Facebook group. Uh, it's called Ariadne's Tribe, and. Um, there, like I said, there are, we've got over a thousand people now. I don't know how that happened. I just turned around and suddenly there were tons of people. But um, that is our—it's a closed group, which means that only members can actually see the posts. So it's our safe space, so we can actually explore um, explore these um, these ideas and share our experiences. A lot of us are solitary practitioners. Um, that's the way it is. Unfortunately, not everybody lives near other people of like mind. Um, some of us are lucky enough to have uh, have local folks that we can do stuff with. Um, we've got members from all over the world, and we we discuss and and we share our experiences of the divine and the numinous with each other and. And you know, take each of us takes what we need, and together um, we have really sort of forged a path that I think connects the ancient Minoans with um, the modern world. Right. Um, well, and, and aside from your books, which I hope you will mention the titles again, um, are there any other uh, books that you would recommend listeners go to that has maybe the most current uh, information about, um, you know, Minoan Crete? Oh, gosh. Um, most of the stuff that's been published is um, very scholarly. Um, academia.edu is an excellent resource. You can sign up for it for free, and I swear most academic writing is not imponderable these days. You can actually get through it. Um, and and just search for Minoa and Crete, and you'll find bajillions. <laughs> um, unfortunately, and not, not a lot of uh, the archaeology is published in popular form anymore because it simply doesn't sell enough. It's not, I don't know, controversial or extreme or whatever sells these days. Um, 
But yeah, and, and that is the problem. There, the problem of, it, but the, that's sort of the problem of academia, isn't it? I mean, I mean, uh, it may take uh, you know fifteen years, if ever, new discoveries ever reach the mainstream. Um, yeah. so, I mean, do you fig- do you figure out a way to go searching for it? Um, I, I mean, can I mean, is that academia dot com a place to go searching for it? Yeah, it's actually it's academia.edu, and yes, it is a place where scholars from all over the world um, post their work, uh, PDFs of their papers, and you can read okay. all of them right there. Um, it's it's an amazing resource. That's that's where I do a lot of research, probably more than I ought to, but I spend a lot of hours okay. reading people's reading people's academic papers because. Um, you know things like the the temple at temple complex and city at Polycastro on the far eastern end of Crete. That's um, Sandy McGillivray and his team spent nearly 20 years uh, excavating that, and that's how we figured out for sure that um, the eruption of Thera happened a good two centuries before the end of Minoan civilization. Because you can look at the layers. Literally, you can right. look at the layers and see, you know, where the tsunami hit and then where they rebuilt after. But, yeah, that's yeah. Just, you know, it just, I guess it doesn't um, capture the popular mind well enough. So a lot of the the popular stuff that's out there right now is still outdated on TV and in books. Um, it's so a little frustrating. So let me ask you, and this was something that was out in the 90s. I wonder if this has been discounted. Um, there was talk that uh, they believe that all of the um, bodies of babies that they found, um, that they were practicing human sacrifice to maybe appease the gods because, uh, you know, maybe, you know, their nature had, turned on them or something, some kind of a way. I don't know whether they were referring to the, you know, the eruption or, you know, maybe, the, you know, food shortage or weather conditions. Um, does any of that ring a bell? Yeah, there was a cave um, on Crete, not not on Thera, but on Crete, that was found with a bunch of um, people of all different ages, and there is still controversy about that and about... Um, about the site of Anemospelia, which looks like it may have involved uh, sacrifice. We, uh, we're fairly certain that they did practice human sacrifice. I don't think the, um, I don't think the idea of, uh, of the, the king being killed every however many years, I don't think that's just symbolic. Um, and we have, uh, we have people who have, uh, various kinds of visions and past life memories of that kind of thing as well. I realize that's not sort of hard data, but when you work in the spiritual realm, you take what, what comes. Um, so you're so talking about uh, like a dying, a dying rising king sort of thing. Yes, yes. But see, that would have been an adult who did it voluntarily and was willing. Um, the idea yeah. of child sacrifice is obviously quite repugnant different and we're yeah and we're still not we're still not sure exactly what the nature of that um there are yeah there, there's a lot of controversy um still about those yeah domains. it's hard it's hard to it's hard to reconcile something like that with the you know the way we we sort of vision them 
you know. Um, well, people so do it, all kinds of things under duress that are not normal yeah. to the society. So, yeah. you know, so the question is, is it a one-off? Is it, you know, when they thought the world was ending? Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah, exactly. you, know, you have to put it in you have to put it in context. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, just think about all the different types of people there are in the world, and some of them do crazy shit, and others are, uh, or 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 more sane. So I'm sure the ancient world was was no different. You know, they might have had their crazy zealots too. Uh, you know, that did, uh, you know, st- stuff that we would uh, frown upon. I mean, well, you know, and the mores, right? Right. Yeah, and I mean, and the mores were different too. I mean, you think about like like we wouldn't do you, uh, we wouldn't do animal sacrifice now, you know. Um, right. So, and there is clear animal sacrifice in in Minoan art. There's no question. And that was yeah. common throughout the ancient world. But I mean, that was like, you know, they we buy our meat carefully wrapped in styrofoam and plastic wrapped from the grocery store, but when they wanted meat, they literally, you know, went out and slaughtered an animal. So that was not yeah. an unusual thing for them. Yeah. And so, well, and it makes me think, think about, you know, the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. I mean, outside the temple, they literally had a place where they butchered the animals. And so they right. would use the animals, you know, use the animals in ritual, and then they would butcher the animals and <clears throat> hand it out to the people. So in a way, right. it was very practical. <laughs> um, well, yeah, they, they so, wasted food. I mean, that's... You don't yeah. do that. That's disrespectful to the God that you're honoring and to the animal that you've just slaughtered. And right. So yeah. So um, so I guess to wrap this up, um, what would you like to say about your books and your tarot deck, um, or any kind, any uh, closing words? Oh gosh. Um, oh, I'm no good at this part of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, all of well, I'm not I'm not a marketer. Okay, I'm a writer and an artist. Um, okay, so um, my website has all the stuff. It's my name, Laura L A U R A Perry P E R R Y, and then the word author, like somebody who writes books, like me. Um, I have written two books about Minoan spirituality. One is called Ariadne's Thread. Um, and the other is called Labrys and Horns. Labrys and Horns is specifically about modern Minoan paganism. Um, in fact, the members of my group asked me to write it, and so that's how it came to be. Um, and I was insane enough to decide to create a tarot deck. Because um, <laughs> I, well, honestly, if I had known what it was going to take to do it, I wouldn't have even started. I would have run screaming in the opposite direction. But. Um, <laughs> You know, in a sense, naivete has its virtues. And I wanted a Minoan tarot deck, and at the time I couldn't find one, so I went and made one. That's the story of that. And so that's on my website. (laughs) That's on my website, or it also has its own website, minoantarot.com. So that's the stuff. Well, you know, I think uh, I think you're doing an incredible thing, uh, actually, uh, helping uh, revive this. And I, I don't know, I think a lot of pagans, especially maybe goddess advocates in particular, you know, we have a soft spot in our heart for Minoan Crete. 
you know, yeah. and wh- whether we have a romanticized view of it or not, I don't know. I guess I don't care. Um, you know, we 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 love it, and we can't get enough of it. Uh, and I'm glad someone is um, diligent and tenacious and. Um, uh, as you, you know, and you strive for as much accuracy as possible, and, you know, you're always looking for new information and um, discoveries and things like that. Um, you know, I, I just love knowing that you're kind of at the helm of this. You know, we couldn't, you know, ask for a, a better, you know, a better person to be schooling us in this. So thank you. Oh, gosh. Well, thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> This is, um, honestly, I feel like the whole thing, you know, put an umbrella over the whole thing is is just, for me, it's like a giant devotional. I I don't know that I could do anything else, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, have have you spent much time on Crete? Have you had the opportunity to actually go there? No, I have not. That is the one sadness in my life that that I have thus far had to look at it from afar. That is next on the list. Um, I have you, made pilgrimages to other places, so. You know, I cannot imagine you won't get there, honestly. You know, yeah, I can't I'm, imagine I'm sure you won't. I'm sure you will, too. I'm sure you will, too. And I, I, I bet your dreams will be... Uh, just in, you know, just filled with, uh, you know, new information and downloads, and uh, I can't wait to hear what you come up with uh, after you actually step feet on the ground. <laughs> um, I, 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 I wish that for you. I, 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 you deserve it. I, you know, I'm sure it will happen. Um, well, Laura, thank you. Uh, thank you for another great interview tonight, and uh, I look forward to chatting with you again. And I am going to close with one of your commercials, if, since you oh don't gosh. like to promote yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, and uh, I'm sure we will talk soon. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay, good night. And if you want to listen to your commercial, um, you can. (laughs) Okay, good (laughs) night, Laura. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Minoans of ancient Crete, an egalitarian society where women were honored, where the sacred feminine was revered, where peace and prosperity reigned for centuries. Hi, I'm Laura Perry, and I'd love to help bring the ancient Minoans to life for you. Explore Minoan spirituality with my books, Labyrinth and Horns, and Ariadne's Thread. Embrace your creative side with the Minoan Coloring Book. And discover the wonders of divination with the Minoan Tarot. You'll find all these at Amazon and other good online and local bookstores. Find out more on my website, lauraperryauthor.com. Laura, before you go, uh-huh. uh, before you go, about your Minoan coloring book, is it for children or adults? I mean, I know coloring books are hot with adults these days. Um, um, it's, very, I, I just, it's very much an adult coloring book. I mean, I guess kids could do it, too. I, I have okay. I know a couple people who bought it to teach their kids, uh, homeschoolers who bought it to teach their kids about uh, ancient Crete, actually. 
but yeah, oh, it's um, okay. it's it's all it's all my line drawings of the frescoes and the figurines and the actual artifacts. It's not made up stuff. It is the actual um, the, the real actual things from Crete. Cool. Well, I'm going to have so. to go look at that website. Um, I'm um, I'm inspired. Thank you, Laura, and uh, best of luck with your books and uh, whatever you're going to do next. Okay. Thanks. You have a good evening. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Um, and so, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that as much as uh, I did. I always have a wonderful time with Laura, and I never cease to learn something. And uh, I, before I go, I want to just tell you about my guest next week on April 18th. Uh, I am going to have with me um, uh, Professor uh, Janine Hill-Fletcher. And uh, she is a theology uh, professor from Fordham University, and uh, she has a new book out about um, that claims white Christians are responsible for racism and discrimination in America. So we are going to have uh, a serious talk about that. Um, uh, her book that came out uh, examines the connection between Christianity, racism, and religious diversity in America. Uh, and she proposes strategies that will help foster racial hearing, healing in America, the first of which is to demand of white Christians that they accept their responsibility for racist policies and structural discrimination in America. So uh, an important subject uh, for sure. So uh, that about does it for us tonight. Uh, I want to thank you for tuning in, and, uh, you know, thank you for your listener loyalty. If you're a regular, uh, please uh, be sure you hit the follow button on the show page so that you get notice of uh, the show each Wednesday, and uh, don't rely on uh, seeing the notice on Facebook or getting an email from me, because to tell you the truth, I don't always have time uh, to put out those sorts of notices. Uh, I invite you to go to the archives. Uh, there's a lot of stuff there, and some of it is uh, just as relevant today uh, as it was uh, when it was first um, when it first aired and when the interview first happened. So uh, that about does it. And, um, you know, as they say, um, uh, you know, give to the spring that feeds you. Uh, If Voices of the Sacred Feminine uh, uh, is, is something that feeds you, that nurtures you, that helps you grow, that keeps you sane, uh, as so many of you uh, are kind enough to email me and say, um, please do uh, support the show, um, you know, monetarily, if you will. Uh, If you can't support the show monetarily, then uh, please uh, spread the word about the show. And if you would like to make a monetary donation of any amount, no amount is too small. It all helps. It all adds up. Uh, The way you do that is... um, uh, I mean, there's many ways you can do it. You can send a check, uh, but most people um, make a contribution to PayPal. Uh, they go to my website, which is karentate.com. Once you get there, uh, go to the uh, Goddess Store 
page uh, where you can find my books and uh, sacred sites, postcards, and free meditations and things like that. Uh, scroll all the way down to the very, very, very bottom, and the very last PayPal button you will find at the bottom of the page enables you to make a donation or contribution of any amount, and it would great, be greatly appreciated. All right, uh, that about does it for me tonight. Um, I hope you are having a wonderful spring, and uh, please tune in uh, next Wednesday when uh, uh, Janine Hill Fletcher is with me uh, talking about um, uh, Christianity and racism. Uh, Good night.